This podcast may contain adult language and situations, graphic, gory details, and other not-so-nice things. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Lacey. And I'm Ashley. And this is United States of Murder. The Patreon! Yeah, this time we're doing musicians. I'm real excited about this. This is a topic I think we can do again. Oh, for sure. Because I was trying to do one that wasn't overdone, you know? So Well, no, same. Like, oh, can't do Kurt Cobain. Well, I could, but you know, can't that do would Freddie Mercury. Forever. Right, right. Ugh. No, no. I was writing this and in my mind, I'm literally a true Hollywood story. <laughs> Yes. It's going to fall flat. It's nowhere compared to to behind the music or any Uh, of that. But in my mind, that's ready. Yes. People die every day. Why are celebrities or rock stars any different? It just is. It's more shocking to us. And so many more people seem to care. After all, these people, these voices are the reason we are the way we are. They're the reason we fall in love while we hang out with certain people or have certain friends. They're there for us when we're down and when we're up. They are the reasons we cry and the reasons we laugh. Even though we've never met these people, they take up space in our memories. To quote Dr. Jill Gross, there's a comfort of knowing certain people are in the world. And when they are suddenly not, we have to rearrange the pieces of our lives that don't include them anymore. We grow up with these bands, these heartthrobs. One that stuck out to me was Michael Hutchins of NXS. Lord have mercy, this man. He was a rock star. He had the looks. He dated the supermodels. He got sucked into a fast world like so many other rock stars. And doing drugs became as normal part of the day as grabbing a cup of coffee. Today, I'm going to dive into the life and death of Michael Hutchins, the man, the music, and his tragic and much too soon death. Michael Kellen Hutchins was born January 22nd, 1960 in Sydney, Australia. He had a younger brother named Rhett. His dad worked in sales and not long after the boys were born, the family packed up and moved to Hong Kong. Michael grew up in Hong Kong and went to private schools. He was active on the swim team, and everyone thought he might make it to the Olympics one day. But he broke his arm in an accident, and this would cause him to give up swimming altogether. His arm just never right. was the same. You need your arms to swim. Uh, yeah, it's just a big part same. of it. That's, that's the majority of it. At the age of 12, the family moved back to Australia. Michael had started writing poetry and was showing an interest in all that artsy stuff. He made friends with a group of brothers and a couple other kids from his school, and they formed a garage band. Mm. The oldest brother, Tim, played the guitar. The middle brother, Andrew, played the keyboard, and the youngest brother, John, played the drums. Michael couldn't play any instruments, much like myself, (laughs) so he He became the singer. Uh, He was the lead singer. He definitely had the looks. They didn't really have any gigs, and they called themselves Dr. Dolphin. 
Why? I don't know. I don't know. Don't know. Mm. In 1975, Michael's parents divorced and he and his mother moved to L.A. Two years later. Yeah. Two years later, they moved back because L.A. just wasn't their thing. Michael reconnects with the band and they decided to either shit or get off the pot. Okay. They decided to get serious. So it's 1977. They bring in Kurt to play the guitar and sax and Gary to play the bass. I miss sax, you know. I miss sax too. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Oh, good old days. So they call the band the Ferris Brothers. They play some local gigs near Sydney. In 1978, the Ferrises moved away. But instead of breaking up the band, all the other members moved along with the Ferrises to Perth, Australia. They continued to play local gigs until the youngest brother, John, graduated from high school. Then the group moved back to Sydney. There, they catch the eye of Gary Morris. He managed Midnight Oil, who was big at the time, and he wanted to help. But he said, we got we to gotta change your name. <laughs> His I name agree. is not... So it's better than the dolphin one. Dr. Dolphin. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of funny. NXS was born and now they have a manager. Does it stand for anything? INXS. Is it like an acronym? There were other English bands that used like letters and Mm -hmm. acronyms and stuff. And that's where he pulled it from. Okay. Hmm. So they released their first album in 1980 with a single peaking at number three in Australia. Their second album came out in 1981 and hit number 15 on the charts again in Australia. They wanted to hit it big and knew they had to make waves in the UK or the US to do this. In 1983, their third album finally did it. It reached the top 20 and had four singles. They wanted to keep up the momentum, so back to the drawing board they went. So Michael has... Major stage presence, haunting good looks, sex appeal, and the women went nuts for him. Sidebar. What is it about lead singers? Why are they so goddamn hot? They all are. You can't have even the ugly lead singers. You're like, they're so hot. They look like Skeletor half the time. Yeah. But with a party city wig on. But you're like, oh my God. Sweat on me. <laughs> well, well, some people are all about the drummers. That's, That's a thing, true. too. Like, some people have their... I'm just saying, if, if Mick Jagger was bagging groceries up here at oh, the Kroger, no, you would not look twice Half the guys that are musicians are only... Yeah, 100%. This is excluding every single member of Kings of Leon, by the way. If you're listening, Kings of Leon, I think all of you are hot. Are they actually... In my opinion, I don't know. I don't know. Well, that's why we can't be friends since well, you no, don't know I don't what they know look, what they look like. <laughs> I like their music. <laughs> okay, where were we? We we digress. So Michael is the spokesman for the band. He does all the interviews. He commands the room, which his family thought was hilarious because he was just not that guy at home. He was an introvert and shy, quiet. But now he's a whole different person mm-hmm. when he's with the band. In 1984, they released their fourth album, which was more rock than pop. And Daryl Hall of Hall & Mm -hmm. Oates sang backup on one of the singles. It hit number one in Australia. Still nothing. 
They're not like blowing up just yet. Right. So album number five was released in 1985. And finally, they have a number one in the U.S. What You Need won multiple awards and is still a total fucking bop to this day. And Michael is a superstar. So Michael's a superstar now. He is rich. He is powerful. He is fucking hot. (laughs) And he's an alcoholic. Common thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. He showed up for his shows, but he had the zoomies the entire time. And the band decides to take an eight-month break. That's long. Yeah, it is. But they come back with a bang. Album number six is released in 1986 in the U.S. and is under Atlantic Records. Kick goes platinum and has all my favorites on it. The Devil Inside, Never Tear Us Apart, New Sensation. The whole damn thing is fire. I Need You Tonight. Come on. That song? Mm-hmm. Come on now. They won four MTV Music Awards for just that song. In 1989, Michael meets Kylie Minogue. That's the one. It's 1990, and now their seventh album is released, featuring the song Suicide Blonde, Mm. which Michael had written for Kylie. Isn't she Australian as well? Okay. Yes. They had a very intense relationship, and after two years, they broke up. Short tempers and alcohol on Michael's part certainly did not help. So the band has worked hard for nearly 10 years straight. So by the time they released their eighth album in 1992, they did very little, if any, promoting. Mm. They didn't tour. They were exhausted. The drinking was out of hand. They were at each other's throats. Michael had started dating a string of women, including supermodel Helena Christensen. So one night, the two of them are out together, and there's an altercation with a taxi driver. Michael is punched in the face, falls back, and hits his head, but refuses medical care because he's a tough guy. But after a few days, the pain was too much, and he goes to the hospital, and they discover he has a skull fracture. He was hospitalized for over two weeks, and he lost all his sense of taste and smell for the rest of his life. One of my friends, her mom was kicked by a horse and has never been able to smell or taste since. I lost all my sense of taste and smell back, you know, a few years ago. It was just for like two weeks and it was a fucking nightmare. Oh, I can't Like you can't do anything. So he comes out of the hospital completely depressed, mad as hell, full of anger. He was very hard to deal with Hmm. and would threaten his bandmates which he had never done before. So after their next album, they decide to take some time off. Michael's become unbearable and they just need a fucking break. During this time, Michael meets Paula Yates in 1994. When he's a guest on a show that she is presenting on, they fall hard for each other. She was activist and rocker Bob Geldof's soon-to-be ex-wife, and those two shared three daughters together. Hmm. So Bob Geldof was in a band called the Boomtown Rats. Oh, my God. They had the song called I Don't Like Mondays. Oh, oh, yes, yeah, yes. about that girl, yeah. the <clears throat> school shooter girl. Ooh. 
1984, images of hundreds of thousands of people starving to death in the Ethiopian famine were shown on a BBC News report. They were the first to report this and described it as biblical famine. Bob decided to do something to help, and he creates Band-Aid and the song, Do They Know It's Christmas, which made a shitload of money, over $24 million, mm. to be exact, to go towards feeding Africa. That's awesome. It's super awesome. This inspired We Are the World, which was written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. Mm. This song included Bob Dylan, Cindy Lauper, Tina Turner, Bruce Springsteen, Stevie Wonder, and so, so many more, and raised over $44 million to aid for wow. Africa. And to this day, I will cry until I throw up if I hear the song. I'm just saying. I remember that music <laughs> video. Yes, yeah. it was so sad. So Bob Geldof is like, I bet we can make even more money for them and bring more attention to this. And Live Aid is born. It's a huge concert. It's going to be televised. It's going to be played on two different continents on the same day. One in London at Wembley Stadium and one in Philadelphia at JFK Stadium. It was one of the largest satellite link-ups and television broadcasts of all time Mm -hmm. with an estimated 1.9 billion people watching in the audience. In 150 nations. That's nearly 40% of the population at the time watched this concert. Holy crap. Organized in just 10 weeks, Live Aid took place on July 13, 1985, with the lineup featuring more than 75 acts, including Mick Jagger, Elton John, Queen, Madonna, Sting, Brian Adams, David Bowie, The Beach Boys, U2, The Who, Tom Petty, And Eric Clapton, just to name a few. You might have heard of those guys. I know them. Phil Collins performed at both London and Philadelphia. He took a Concorde jet from one to the other and performed on both stages in the same day. But it was Freddie Mercury who stole the show with his performance. Mm -hmm. He went from Bohemian Rhapsody to We Will Rock You, ending with We Are the Champions. If you've seen the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, it starts and ends with this performance. I can't even fucking imagine how awesome that mm. would have been to see. I mean, Bonnaroo who? I know, <laughs> They right? do not put on they don't. things like this to raise money. They don't. Yeah, you're right. For, for all of, I mean, it's just, it's crazy to me that all of these people just signed on and did this. Anyways, I'm just giving you a little backstory of who Bob Geldof is. He's a little famous, kind of a big deal, and he was knotted by Queen Elizabeth. So this is who she's divorcing. Wow. To hook up with Michael Hutchins. Just saying. So they're in the middle of this bitter custody battle. Okay. that And he's got a lot of freaking money, obviously. Yes. It's very public. Mm -hmm. And the fact that she is not yet divorced from him when her and Michael start dating and him having the reputation of being a heavy drinker with a bad temper did not help the public's view on this relationship. Mm -mm. But they didn't care. They were completely mad about each other. Mm. And both Paula... And Michael were addicted to drugs. Yeah. Hers was heroin. Golly. His was prescription drugs and cocaine. 
he was self-medicating. His head? Not depression, not being able to smell, taste, probably some residual head pain. In 1996, Paula finds out she is pregnant. Oh, God. Her and Michael are both excited. Paula's ex, Bob, was not. He did not approve of this relationship. He knew they were doing drugs, Mm -hmm. and he knew she was shooting up heroin and everything else during the pregnancy. He also knew that Michael wasn't any better, and he was worried about his daughter's little sister and wanted to make sure that she was taken care of, even if that meant taking them to court and raising this baby himself. Yes. That would be like you and Sam divorcing. And you getting pregnant by another man, and when that baby is born, Sam taking that baby from you guys because he wanted to raise it with its siblings, and he knew that you two were unfit. That's exactly what what he's talking about doing. So they had the baby and named her Tiger Lily, and Michael was over the moon. Did she have issues? No. Do you know? Wow. No. No. Have the baby. Michael's over the moon. But now they're in a custody battle mm-hmm. against Bob Geldof. Well, technically, it's not his. So what rights? It's does not. He it's have? you're right. I mean, it's not his. He's not. He can related to not because like no. her mother or mm-hmm. other family members mm-hmm. have more rights than he mm-hmm. does. I would think. I also don't know how. But money the, talks, and I don't know how court and laws and shit work in the UK and Australia and Fair all that. Enough. I don't. Yeah, I don't know how don't that know. works. So in the meantime, NXS gets back together. And release an album in 1997 titled Elegantly Wasted, which is one of my favorite NXS songs. And this, this song will fuck me up every time I'm telling you. Windows down. I'm screaming at a red light. I think I'm singing in my mind, but it just sounds like one of those screaming ghosts to everyone else. Oh, no. Michael hates being away from Paula and his baby girl. And his depression is at an all-time high when they start their world tour. Paula and her three girls and the baby are supposed to fly to Australia to meet him. They're in the UK somewhere. But Paula can't join him because she and her ex are in the middle of the custody battle and she is not allowed to leave the country with the girls. Michael is furious. There are multiple phone calls going back and forth. There was a custody hearing that got pushed back to December. They're not allowed to leave. Right. He can't, they can't go. So this is all happening first thing in the morning, like 5 a.m., according to other guests staying in the hotel. Michael's upset. There are drugs involved. He supposedly tells Paula he doesn't know how he can go on without seeing his baby. Mm. He tells her he's going to call Bob and beg him to let the girls come see him. Bob would later tell police that this is true. He did call him and was cursing at him, ranting and raving. Then he calls his ex-girlfriend around 9.54 a.m. He's upset. He says he needs to see her. So she shows up about an hour later, but he doesn't answer the door. So she leaves. The maid gets there around 11.50, opens the door, and finds Michael dead in his hotel room in Sydney. He was high on booze, pills, cocaine. He had stripped naked and wrapped his belt around his neck, making it into a makeshift noose. The other end of the belt hung on the top of the automatic door lock. He was leaned forward, forcing pressure on his neck. 
the belt buckle eventually broke, but it was too late. Michael had died. Rumors soon started to swirl that this was an accident. According to Wikipedia, erotic asphyxia is the intentional restriction of oxygen to the brain for the purpose of sexual arousal. Autoerotic asphyxia is when the act is done by a person to themselves. The coroner ruled it as a suicide. After hearing the state of mind he was in, the depression, the drugs, the alcohol, all the phone calls, he was like, yeah, this was, he committed suicide. Paula would later say that this was no suicide. He was experimenting with kink and this was an accident. Michael's funeral was held on November 27, 1997, and they played his music throughout the funeral. Mm. Gosh. And his funeral was huge in Britain, like huge. Right. It was televised, all, all the things. His ashes were scattered in Sydney Harbor in 1998. Paula did save a vial of his ashes and had them sewn into a pillow that she slept with. His family fought for custody of his daughter, Tiger Lily, but lost in 1998 to Bob Geldof. He promised to raise her with his other daughters, formally adopting her and changing her last name to Geldof in 2007. It's just so strange. It's very strange. Hmm. Michael's family fought all of this, but lost, and they were also denied visitation okay. by the judge, which I think is kind of shitty. That is. Those are her grandparents. Those are her, that's, that's her, her family. That's her only bloodline yes. to her father. Yes. And that's it's important. like they're just being smooshed no, away. That sucks. And this other man is, I mean, great that he wanted to step yeah, up and raise nice, her. But- but that's it's like selfish to not to, I don't know to not want to no, that's, nurture that bloodline. No, I'm I'm with you. Man. So in September of 2000, Paula Yates, Tiger Lily's mother, died at the age of 41 of a drug overdose. Oh, this poor child. I know. And that's the tragic that is tragic. Death Jeez. and life of Michael Hutchins of yeah. NXS. I didn't even know about this guy until today. I've heard of the songs, but I was like, <laughs> I in excess. Man, that is. Yeah, it makes you definitely want to look deeper into. Yeah, because I get, I see both. I mean, right. if he's talking about suicide and he's mm-hmm. an addict and then, but also, I don't know. I don't know. There's been other people that have died that way, right? Celebrities. Yeah. I can't think of any off the top of my head. I found a Ranker article. Oh, it lists Michael. Mm-hmm. David Carradine from Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. A lot of people I don't really know. Albert Decker. Kevin Gilbert. Do you know him? Yes, but how? I recognize his photo. He worked with Madonna, Michael Jackson, and Eddie Money. He was found with the black hood over his face and a leather strap connected oh. to his headboard. That's that kind of that stuff freaks me out. I'm mm-mm. being choked. I don't want to die like that. I don't know. I'm accident prone. I don't need to bring it on to myself. So my case today is kind of similar, and it's not a surprise because it's a musician. I mean, I feel like alcohol and drugs. It's a disaster. Yeah, it's It's a a recipe for disaster. (laughs) If you're a musician, I'm sorry. So today I'm going to talk about Elliot Smith. For those of you that aren't familiar with him, he was a lo-fi folk indie rock artist. 
Some of his songs were more so indie pop, but he had a distinctively melancholic voice, and he was a member of the thriving music scene of Portland, Oregon in the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Elliot Smith's birth name was Stephen Paul Smith, and he was born on August 6, 1969 in Omaha, Nebraska. His parents divorced when he was just a baby, and his mom moved with him to Duncanville, Texas. He unfortunately had a bad childhood. He had a stepfather named Charlie Welsh, who Elliot said sexually abused him as a child, but his stepdad always denied this. Oh my God. Yeah. And Elliot wrote about this in Some Song. That's the title, Some Song. His family frequently attended a local Methodist church, but Elliot later said that going did little for him except make him really scared of hell. Oh my God. He started getting into music at a young age, and at just nine years old, he started playing piano. And at 10, he learned the guitar from a small acoustic guitar that was bought for him by his dad. At 10 years old, he composed an original piano piece called Fantasy that won him a prize at an arts festival. Very impressive for a 10-year-old or just anybody. Um, yes. Well, later when he was 14, he decided to move to Portland, Oregon and live with his dad. His dad worked as a psychiatrist there. And it was around this time that Elliot started experimenting with drugs and drinking, like drinking heavily. He was still into music, though. He played clarinet in high school and still played piano and guitar. He went on to graduate from Lincoln High School as a National Merit Scholar. It was after he graduated he decided to change his name. He thought Steve sounded like a jock's name, and Stephen was too bookish. There's also speculation that he was inspired by Elliott Avenue, which is a street he had lived on in Portland, or that maybe it was just suggested by a girlfriend. In 1991, Elliot graduated from Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts, with a degree in philosophy and political science. While there, he formed the band known as Heat Miser. All these early bands they start. He formed this with classmate Neil Gust. They were semi-successful, depending on how you look at it. After five years, they were signed to Virgin, but right after they signed, they disbanded. Elliot had already started his solo stuff when the band was still together, so he just continued to do that when they disbanded. In the early 1990s, Elliot's girlfriend at the time convinced him to send a tape of songs he had recently recorded on a borrowed four-track to Cavity Search Records. Cavity Cavity Search, Search. yeah. Cavity owner Christopher Cooper asked to release the entire album of songs, which surprised Elliot. He was only expecting a deal for a seven-inch record. The album became Elliot Smith's release, Roman Candle, in 1994. It had mixed reviews, but the album would be the start of his musical journey, like his career, not just, you know. This also really surprised him because he's in the Pacific Northwest in the heyday of grunge. Yeah. And his music was not grunge. In early 1997, he released his self-recorded third solo LP called Either Or. Several of his songs made reference to drugs. He explained that he used the theme of drugs as a vehicle for conveying dependence rather than the songs being about drugs specifically. Sure, Jan. Right? At the end of the Either Or tour, some of his close friends staged an intervention for his heavy drinking. This didn't change anything, 
And then he moved from Portland to Jersey City, and then from there to Brooklyn. Do you remember the movie Goodwill Hunting? Um, yes. He recorded an orchestral version of Between the Bars for the movie. You've probably heard that song before. Probably. But yeah, it was for the movie, and he created a new song for the movie called Miss Misery, and the film had a few other songs, so the soundtrack was very heavy, Elliot Smith. Because of this, he was nominated for an Academy Award, and in 1998, he sang at the Oscars. And this is when Titanic swept the floor. It was that that year. Nobody was going to touch it. Exactly. By 2000, he'd been making music for around five years on a professional level, but he did not like being in the limelight at all. He also made the move to L.A. Around the time he began recording his final album, he started showing signs of paranoia. He believed that a white van was following him, and he would even have his friends drop him off for recording sessions almost a mile away from the studio. He would take a random path through brush, by cliffs, and then finally reach his location. It would take him forever to get to the studio because he was just, he thought he was being followed. He also started telling people that DreamWorks was out to get him. What? Yeah, he said they were breaking into his home and stealing songs off his computer. He was also hardly eating, but when he did eat, he only ate ice cream. Can't relate. (laughs) I eat that and everything, but he'd go days without sleeping, and then he'd all of a sudden just sleep all day long. At this point, he had a well-documented drug habit, and he had even been seen wandering subway tracks late at night when he lived in Brooklyn. When he lived in Portland, he'd been using heroin, but by the time he moved to LA, he started smoking crack. Yeah. What the crap? It's hard. He was into the hard stuff. So this obviously made him a complete disaster on stage. He would forget the lyrics of his own songs, fall asleep on stage in the middle of songs, and he would be found in bar bathrooms passed out with needles hanging out of his arms. That's horrifying. It, it really is. I mean, it was just, whew. By 2002, he said he'd gotten clean by using neurotransmitter restoration. I've never heard of this. I looked it up and it said it's a type of therapy that speeds up the healing process of the brain's chemistry while detoxing. But his friends did notice a positive change in him. And he was working on a new album he would call from a basement on a hill. And he had the support of his then-girlfriend, Jennifer. Jennifer Chiba was also a musician. And they allegedly met at Rockfest Festival and then later reconnected when Elliot moved to L.A., But his friends gave a totally different story. They said that when he moved to L.A., Jennifer became his drug dealer. And then that's how they became romantically involved. She allegedly got him hooked on new drugs. That's according to them. I'm not sure. But a drug counselor who helped Elliot through his addiction also later confirmed his friends' versions of events. I'm like, isn't that supposed to be private? But anyway. Well... On October 21st of 2003, Elliot and Jennifer were at their house on Lemoyne Street, which isn't far from the Dodgers Stadium. Before lunchtime, they had an argument. Things escalated and Elliot threatened suicide. But this wasn't unusual. This is a very common thing. I feel like we all have a friend like that. Yeah. And she and several of his friends were used to him threatening to end his life. This had been going on for decades. Because of this, when he said that, she didn't take him seriously. Right. Because they've had the same argument a million times. 
So she ignored his threats and locked herself in the bathroom to get away from him. Soon after, she heard him scream. She went back to the living room and found him standing with his back to her. When she turned him around, she saw a kitchen knife sticking out of his chest. What? Yeah, jutting out of his ribcage. Elliot had stabbed himself in the heart. Oh my God. She pulled it out and he collapsed on the floor. She called 911 and performed CPR until the emergency services got there. Are you supposed to pull it out? I didn't think so. I don't know. I thought you were supposed to keep it in until, because when you pull something out, a shit ton of blood's coming out. So she called emergency services and he was taken to the hospital and had emergency surgery. Despite this, he was pronounced dead 20 minutes after arriving at the hospital. He was 34 years old. And people that do know his music know that his songs center around drug use and suicide. He sang about it all the time. So when the public found out, they weren't surprised. He told many of his friends he had been on the verge of killing himself for years. But the method and timing made a lot of friends suspicious. Yeah, I don't... Killing yourself this way is very uncommon. I mean, when there's usually when there's a knife or a blade involved, it's used on wrists. People stabbing themselves, first of all, it's extremely painful. And the thought of you doing that to yourself is hard to imagine. I can't imagine. He was stabbed and the knife turned. Like, to do that to yourself. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. If yeah. I have to clip a weird toenail that I have, I'm like, <gasps> No. And he did it twice. He did it twice. He stabbed, pulled it out, and then stabbed again? Mm Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you think the first one was going to kill you? I don't know. But the location and the direction of the stab wounds were consistent with self-infliction. Like, if you can imagine having a knife and doing it to yourself, it technically did line up. So both wounds entered his chest cavity, and one perforated his heart. There were no hesitation wounds. They just went right in. God bless. But his autopsy revealed small lacerations on both of his hands and under his right arm. Some people thought those could be defensive wounds. It was also claimed that Jennifer's removal of the knife from Elliot's chest and her refusal to speak with detectives were of concern. When they got there, she wouldn't speak to them. That's a little suspect. But maybe she... Maybe she was just like, I can't, I I just can't talk right now. You know, I don't know. Yeah. But also I would think that. I I would also, if it had happened to me, I would want an investigation. If I, well, I guess if he, I don't know. It was revealed from the autopsy that he had no drugs in his system. So he was clean when he died. And if he did that to himself, he was Mm -mm. of sound. Well, he was of sober mind and also no pain relief. Just like, golly. Mm -mm. He died before his new album, From a Basement on a Hill, was finished. And a week before his death, Jennifer called his recording engineer and told him they had to get him in the studio and finish this thing. The profits from the record were going to go to the charity for abused children that Elliot and Jennifer established. After his death, rumors started spreading that he never kicked the drug habit and that he and Jennifer had a very volatile relationship. They were constantly arguing and breaking up. You know, getting back together. Some people that knew him said it was a crazed, druggy Sid and Nancy situation, which 
That didn't end up well. No. One friend, Mark Flanagan, who owned a Hollywood club where Elliot regularly performed, said, quote, I don't believe the guy stabbed himself in the chest. It just doesn't add up. I wouldn't be surprised if someone else did this. He was doing drugs with low-life scum. He was around a lot of creepy people and some very negative, dangerous people. But on the flip side, other friends said he was clean and they knew that. So there were a, a lot of different stories, but we do know the tox report or the autopsy showed he didn't have drugs in his system. Well, Jennifer found an apparent suicide note on a post-it note that read, I'm so sorry, love Elliot, God forgive me. Mm-hmm. So whether you think Jennifer did it or not, she did not gain much from his death. Right. She didn't get any of his money, and the band she was in broke up, and she was getting death threats because so many people in the community thought she did it. Right. So she was getting threatened all the time. The case is still open, but no arrests have ever been made. Elliot was cremated, and his ashes were divided between his mom, dad, and half-sister Ashley. To this day, his influence still lives on. Artists such as Phoebe Bridgers, Billie Eilish, and Madonna have cited him as an inspiration for their music. And he is still regarded as one of the most influential artists in indie music. Regardless if it was a murder or a suicide, that's tragic. It's awful. And then, you know, Courtney Love always has something to say. Oh, shit. She was like, that's the best suicide (gasps) You know, like, oh, stabbing yourself. Like, we don't romanticize suicide. No, we don't. Shut up. (sighs) I didn't look into that. I don't, maybe she ended up apologizing for saying that, but I'm like, ew. That's some wild stuff. And before I was looking up articles, I knew he had died this way, but I didn't know the circumstances around it that some people thought he didn't do it. I mean, I'm. It is suspicious. It's suspicious. And he was wearing clothes. He he stabbed himself through clothes. And I read some articles that said that's unusual. I don't know. It, Maybe because it's because you would I don't know. Normally, I don't, meaning like it's it's unusual for a person to inflict harm on themselves when it's clothed. You know what I mean? If that makes sense. That makes sense. If I'm ever stabbed, let the record show I did not do it because. I am terrified of blood, and (laughs) I would faint before I – no. I could not do that. I could not – I black out every time I get my blood drawn from a needle, so if – No, I couldn't stab myself. Like, let it be known. Let the investigations roll. Let the records show. Absolutely not. But anyway, that's some fun stuff. Oh, man. Oh. No. Which musician's death affected you maybe the most? Oh, man. Don't know how to word it properly. Um, the most maybe shocking that I was like, oh, no. I mean, Whitney Houston's got to be up there for me. I I felt like you were going to say that. Yeah. I love me some Whitney. Yeah. That one was one that, I mean, Prince, George Michael. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'm really talking my age here. Like the older. Well, the one that really. Didn't didn't shock me the most because he had cancer. Was David Bowie? It really. I mean, yeah. I was sad. I sure, was like, sure, not yeah, like yeah. obviously I didn't know him, but well, I mean, it's it kind of like, when, like a, right. Wow, that's like how you were saying in the intro. He doesn't exist anymore. He's not. And I don't then, know. And then it makes you think about every single thing yeah. in your life when it's that kind of sad. Yeah, quote unquote person was a part of it. You mm-hmm. know, I don't know. It's like that with celebrities too. When Princess Di died, I remember being like, 
like legit mm-hmm. sad and staying up yeah, and I setting an alarm to watch the funeral to do and like crying. Mm-hmm. It was super tragic and awful. It's, it's just interesting how sometimes these celebrities and, and mm-hmm. you know, What's it singers. called? Parasocial relationships. Sure. When you feel like you know someone that you don't know. But it, it's like they affect you more personally, as stupid as that sounds, than somebody who you may know through six degrees of separation. Oh, 100%. You know what I mean? Well, like, it's because oh, they're it's more so part of your life. Because so you listen to aunt them. died, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like you may have met her once and you're like, oh, that sucks. But you're not, yeah. you know, on the bathroom floor crying all night because yeah. – Somebody you've never met and only seen on TV exactly. passed away. Yeah. So it's complicated. Yeah, it is. On the Patreon Facebook page, y'all should share your who. Yeah, it's, yeah. I don't know even know how to phrase it. Celeb or musician deaths that affected really you, you or yeah, rocked you. Pun. Now you got the puns. I also have a list of artists who never won a Grammy, and this list is going to shock you. Okay. Because I read it and was like, no. Well, sometimes movies shock me. So, I mean, I'm in. I'm in. Let's hear it. Artist who never won a Grammy. Jimi Hendrix. The Doors. Janis Joplin. Well, they were – Jimi and Janis were so young, though. Maybe that's what's shocking. But no, they never shocking. won an award. No, I know. But they died so young, you know. They that they maybe became more famous after the fact. Maybe. maybe. I don't know. Eh, well, Queen. That's surprising. The Beach Boys. They're still kicking. Some of them. That's surprising. Yeah. Uh, Diana Ross. Okay. The Who. Buddy Holly, who was another one that died super young. Yeah. Journey. Really? Yes. Bob Marley, also another one that died pretty young. Yeah. Guns N' Roses, The Ramones, and The Grateful Dead. None of them ever won a Grammy. Hmm. Crazy. I know. You know who else hasn't ever won a Grammy? Me, this girl Neither. right here. Me either. With with those pipes that with you use at karaoke, karaoke pipes, come on, man! The ones that make cats scream in the distance. No, well, that was an interesting one. It was an interesting one. What is the song that you can sing? Gun to your head. Somebody is going to tell you, no. Someone's going to shoot you. Gun to your head. If you mess up one lyric, what's the song you're going to sing? Well, I'm going to get shot because I mess up. Let me tell you what I think. You're not going to know the song. Let me tell you what I think it would be for you. You're not going to know it. I think Lacey's would be strawberry wine. (laughs) I might be able to do that one, but the one song I love seeing in my car at the top of my lungs. It's going to be Taylor Swift. No, 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 no. Miserable at Best by Mayday Parade. No idea who that is. It's a sad song. Ugh. It's long. It's like six minutes. I saw them in concert when I was a youth. Just kidding. I was in college. Yeah, I was in college. Yes. I love it. Blare it up. I'm Never singing, heard it. Screaming. It's it's a sad emo song. Oh, God. Never heard they it. They didn't play the emo night because it's Six minutes? You know all the lyrics? Yep. That's oh the gosh. one. That's the gun to my head. Oh, boy. What's yours? Um, Mine would probably be... Celine. Well, here's here's a weird talent that I have. I can hear a song 
two times at most, and we'll know every word. Really? It's a weird thing with me. I feel like I have to see, read lyrics. No, I can huh. hear it. I, well, I may be saying some word wrong, but I can I can do it. It's bizarre. You should be on that show. I have played. Game show. So we used to go to trivia nights and other things, and that would, you know, be mm-hmm. a game, name that tune. I'd win every time. <sighs> Literally out of the gate. Songs that I've only ever heard like one time from like the 60s. And I would be able to get the song and the artist. It's bananas. Okay. Well, with that knowledge, but my song, trivia. My song would be either Night Moves, Bob Seger. Okay. Yeah. Or Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding. Like those Ooh. are my two fave, fave songs ever in the whole world. Also, Pussy Control by Prince. <laughs> <laughs> I remember trying to get you to sing that at karaoke once, and you're like, absolutely not. I I even wrote your name on it and put it in. Lose my mind when that song They're comes on. They're having a Prince thing at the hall. I know. I want to go. I don't really know much of his stuff, but I'll go. I saw I know Prince. Purple Rain. I saw Prince in concert. He's tiny. He's teeny tiny, and he performed the whole show in high heels. Of course. Amazing. Very, very talented guitar player. I'm just saying. I said he is tiny. He was tiny. He's still tiny. He's still His tiny. bones didn't grow, Lacey. Yeah. He's teeny weeny. Well, he's still, still tiny. Yeah. He's flying around in heaven oh. <laughs> with his little purple wings. Oh, that's a, Someone draw that if you're artistic. Please, little please draw purple wings. Purple wings. Things are escalating quickly. Oh, boy. Okay, what's our uh, December Patreon? It's got to be some Christmas bullshit because that's what we do. I don't know. We did like... We've done so many Christmas. I know. I don't know. Christmas special shit. Okay. We'll bank on it. It doesn't even have to be... We shouldn't do a Christmas because we've already... We'll have a Christmas special. Sure. It's too much Christmas. Yeah. Let us know what you think. We have time. What do you think we should do December's Patreon? I like this. This was Lacey's idea. This is good. Sometime Out of the in the future, we need to do a Hollywood one or something. Yeah. Or a lesser known Hollywood one. I don't know. Anyway, till next month. Bye. Till next month. Bye.